0: That was Moonlight Over Rigel 8 by the incomparable Mr. Mel Torme Jr. I'm Layman Pascal, Deep Undercover for the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, and welcome back to 24 straight hours of integral stage author interviews. Coming up, Leanne and Narayan will tell us about the multi-author book they've shepherded into existence under the name Human Work, Five Leadership Mindsets for Humanizing the Workplace. We'll explore some of the themes in this text, but we're also just going to try to show up for each other in unexpected ways and be with each other as deeply as the format allows. Hello to both of you hello layman
1: hello, Lehman.
2: <laughs> I guess the first most important thing to get out of the way is how do people get their hands on this delicious book <laughs> Leanne <laughs>
1: <laughs> is this the time where I get to tell the story layman please do yeah so <laughs> so here's here's the the nuts and bolts of it is there is a website that you can go to to choose where you want to get your book from. It's humanworknetwork.com. And there you'll be able to see where you download your book or get a hard copy from Apple, Amazon, et cetera. So it's out there in the world.
2: Finally. So I noticed you went with
0: an S rather than a Z for the word humanizing. Was that intentional and follow-up question? What does it mean to be human?
3: Wait, it's supposed to be spelled with a Z?
1: Oh Narayan, no, what have we done?
3: What's uh
1: well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
3: just kidding. Uh we we chose to go with um the UK spelling or the non-American spelling throughout the whole book, uh, because I'm Canadian and Leanne's uh from New Zealand
0: and the follow up question what does it mean to be human
3: for humanizing the workplace when we talk about humanizing work um we we sort of offer the definition that a human workplace is one that invites people to show up at their best whatever that means for them in service to the whole of their lives both in work and and beyond with everything they care about so that's sort of the definition that we're Finding uh, finding is most helpful right now. Of course, each person will have their own definition of what human means to them, and that's car- kind of why we're we're letting them define the word human,
2: what it, whatever that means for them. And who are you? Who are you imagining are the ideal readers of this book? Who's it for? Yeah. Well, this is this is interesting because Leanne and I kind of picture
3: different leaders because we've worked with different leaders, so. I was imagining people everywhere in the organization, people without positional authority, people with positional authority. And um, Leanne was really holding the pen on speaking to CEOs um, and people with the most uh, positional power in an organization. So you'll kind of get to hear both voices in the book. But we're also looking at not just business leaders, but people in not-for-profits, people doing community work. Uh, really anything that people consider to be their their livelihood
1: and you, you, you know like what we've got imagine? we've gone we've gone kind of you know like who advises anyone to write a book where you've got a really broad audience like we have right but the thing is what we care about is that we can utilize the power of organizations uh, in ways that really impact our social outcomes in our communities so we're really trying to draw the bow between how we are with each other as human beings in the workplace, and how that has us leave work at the end of the day and go in to be parents and partners and and contributing members of our communities in ways that that really serve our serve our the social fabric. Huh? So we're really just trying to light the the. Put, a, put some fireworks under the message of our organisations can really be places that um, serve our communities if we if we're really intentional and 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 pay attention to how we create the conditions for humans to really be fully human.
0: So the book is arranged around five humanising principles, and then there's a a set of illustrative stories at the end. Um, maybe it would be good for us to go through those principles now at the beginning so people have a sense of what they are what's the first humanizing principle
3: the the first the first mindset that we've come across is learning and growth which is we found leaders who when you ask them tell me what's important to understand about humanizing the workplace they say well my inner growth was really where it started I had to I had to learn to approach the world with curiosity and to see myself as not perfect, but something who will make mistakes. And, um, and from them, that's where this culture of learning and growth starts to stem from. And that's one of the ways that we found that um, leaders were
2: humanizing the workplace. Leanne, what's the second mindset?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to jump into the second mindset, and I'd also say that um, we've got these, this idea of these five mindsets, right? But you know, what the the biggest thing that we learned from the research that we did in the book is that there is no one way to come at this humanizing workplaces. And so, what we noticed is there were these five mindsets that showed up as we were speaking with leaders, as we were doing our research with thought leaders. Um, And it's not like there's a right one, it's not like someone just holds one or holds all five, but they were kind of thematic, right? Um, And so then the next mindset that we found was um, everyone's a leader. And in that mindset, it's this idea that this old hierarchical leadership style of leadership exists because of your position, like what else is available if you let that go? Right, and and if you if you really create the conditions in the organisation to to have people step into their leadership and influence from where they are, rather than looking up the tree to authority. And what can what can really happen in organisations and for the humans when when we have that level of uh, autonomy and decision making about how, when, why we do what we do.
0: When you say everyone's a leader, what does leader mean in that context? What what notion of leadership is broad enough to apply to everyone?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's such a beautiful question. Um I'm sure there's a really good technical answer to this and probably got that one. Um but what I might just say is you, you if you come from the world view of everyone has leadership in them, it just it just depends on whether or not they're in the context to be able to use that and whether they have what they need inside of themselves to use it, huh? So I would just define it as um, leadership is is not not really a thing, but it's the way in which which we create conditions in an organization for uh, people to be able to, to really step into um, their own authority uh, and influence those
4: around them. Narayan. does that right image, to you, Ryan,
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I like the word agency
3: and influence. Yeah, it's it's kind of seeing myself as master of my own destiny and having autonomy to support the the organization um, and those around me, and not necessarily needing to be told what to do. To feeling response able within the organization, and the more that we can empower that, the 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 more nimble we are as an organization and it also feels good we
2: like to have control over our destiny
0: i like the word nimble
2: (laughs) what's uh what's the third mindset narayan the mindset of belonging and
3: there's some leaders who just exemplify this beautifully where what they care to create is a space where everybody has A role to play where everybody feels like they're a part of something bigger than themselves and in in some of the in some of the leaders that we spoke with um and in my understanding of belonging um there's a felt sense of belonging that we can navigate by to say when do i feel the most togetherness with others and in which situations do i not feel that do i feel disconnected and that actually navigating with this felt sense of connectedness can actually help you to become a better leader um and to help to create this space where everybody feels like they belong where everyone sees how they can contribute and so you start to find more harmony in these kinds of organizations that are sort of lead- being led from this principle of belonging
0: and what do you say to a leader who says sure That sounds great for a family, but this is a workplace to somebody who has a fundamental dichotomy between trying to establish a belonging space and their notion of what an effective business is.
2: Of
3: course, I'd I'd do the move to say yes, and that perspective is welcome, too. It also (laughs) belongs. We need people who also care about profit. It's not it's not an either or between profit and human work. It's 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 a both and. And that, of course, is one of the moves of belonging, is to see the sense in every perspective and to work to actually be able to integrate that into the whole, which cares about multiple things, both profit and people.
1: And and I might just add, just purely from a business case perspective, that the research that was done around um, the Great Resignation, largest resignations, obviously, between April and September in 2021, Toxic corporate culture was 10 times more likely to contribute to attrition than compensation. Like we we know a whole heap about why people left organisations in that time. And we know a whole heap about why people continue to leave organisations. What we do know is that, uh, as part of that research, is that employees with a lower sense of belonging had a 313% stronger intention to quit Compared to those with strong social connections at work, and and the cost of replacing an employee is somewhere between fifty and two hundred percent of your salary. That's Gallup stats. So, you know, if you just want to put on a hard headed um, view of of why is this good, belonging uh, is a a, con- a significant contributor to keeping good, good people. And if if we've got to replace them, it costs us money.
0: I don't know how direct the analogy is between an organization and a human body but i imagine if my kidneys didn't feel like they belonged and tried to leave that i would be doing something seriously wrong and i would not be getting good results down the line uh liam what's the fourth mindset
1: oh yeah um the fourth mindset is actually my favorite um you asked ask them in good order here layman um Because, you know, this is interesting too, right? Narayan and I don't come from the same mindsets as well. So some of these feel really resonant with me and not with Narayan and vice versa. But this one is love and care. Love and care is a mindset uh, that was really uh, helpable uh, in talking to some leaders. um, That their whole reason for bringing a more human workplace into being or at least influencing that was because they had this feeling about the human being in front of them, that they could really relate to the human in front of them being somebody who was loved and cared for by somebody else. So like we heard a story from one of the leaders that talked about, you know, if I think about somebody I love and care for, like one of my adult children, and I think about them going into a workplace, how do I want them to be treated? What kind of environment do I want them to be in? And then if I come back to my work environment, this is the CEO talking, and I see that there's a human being in front of me. And I imagine that that human being is loved and cared for in the way that I love and care for my adult children. And I think about how I want them to be treated, imagining that that, that, that was them in front of me. It helps me really bring an a way of being with this human being that comes from a place of love and care Uh, and that's a really different mindset than a traditional view of a cog and a wheel like a resource in front of me to be used Uh, so it changes the whole way in which i communicate um the what the way in which i we can have tough conversations uh yeah so Love and care is um, sounds woolly and fluffy, and yet it was a mindset that uh, felt like it was very grounded in ways of of being, I use an example of Bob Chapman, he's the CEO of Barry Waymiller, very much comes from this place of love and care for his um, for the for the humans in that organization. And and that's and not just him, right? It's like, so these organizations can't be truly human if it just relies on the leader. So, you know, investing really heavily in leadership development to be able to build and bridge this idea of caring for our fellow humans.
0: Yeah, love and care does sound a little nebulous, but the way you describe it seems very actionable. Like what you were laying out sounded to me like something you could gather people together in a room and ask them to imagine and form connections between the love and care relationships they already have and the people
2: that are around them. It seems very deployable.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is, Layman.
2: Yeah. Mm. Last mindset, Orion. What do you got? It's human systems.
3: And of course, this is one of my favorite mindsets um, because it draws inspiration from complexity theory and systems thinking. And there are leaders out there who can do this integration and can see the different parts of organizations, all the different people. And they're not just looking at the parts, but they're looking at the relationships between them and the types of emergent properties that arise from all of these different aspects of of an organization and so in 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 these kinds of organizations there's there's not a sense that there's there's problems to be solved uh but more like dynamics that can be shifted and so leaders who really come at this uh this human work from a systems perspective they are they're looking at How do we way find together rather than plan how do we care for the culture how do we nurture the soil that arises the kind of human feeling that we're looking for and knowing that there is no right answer so there's a way in which this book is actually written from the perspective of human systems which is why we put it at the end because what we invite the the reader into wondering about is how might each of these mindsets that we've previously described actually integrate together as a system how does how does learning and growth mindset like there's people in your organization who may be coming at their work from this learning mindset how do they work with the people who are caring about belonging and how do those people talk to the people who are really embodying love and care and how do all of those pieces start to play together to give arising this this more human culture that people can actually feel and say where did this come from well it didn't come from this thing individually or this thing but it kind of came from everything everywhere all at once and and what does it take to actually be able to do that with intentionality rather than just saying it seems like there's a lot of magic or coincidences going on in this organization
0: are these mindsets, um, you know, uniquely slanted toward workplace and business organizations, or do you see them as broadly applicable across all kinds of human groupings and activities?
3: Definitely the latter. Like totally guilty. This uh, this book, ostensibly, it's it's di- it's directed and uses a lot of examples from business and from uh, just workplaces, but. I kind of imagine that you could take the same principles and and apply it to human culture more broadly, or you could have a version of this that speaks about family systems, um, and that these are different mindsets that we may tend to view every aspect of our lives
2: through.
1: Yeah, and I just think I might add to that. I, I love that challenge. Um, we We wrote the book because... We can jump in, Narayan, if I'm speaking too much on, on your behalf here, and you have a different view, but um, we wrote the book because we care about uh, the future um, of this planet and its humans, uh, and this this desire for a future that works for everyone. We happen to choose the workplace As a powerful place to make an intervention is the wrong word, but you know, like to draw attention to this human element is the workplace. Uh, Because people spend 80,000 hours there over their lifetime. The only thing that eclipses that is sleep, right? So choosing workplace seemed like a, a good place to have this conversation. But of course, so many thought leaders have talked about aspects of this in other areas of our life. And it seems to me that if we really care about the world working for everyone that we bring these mindsets to the way in which we engage with the person who's serving us in the supermarket or the person who knocks at the door over dinner time to you know fill out a survey or you know like imagining a world that works for all humans um if we if we're intentional about that then we I I agree with Narayan that, you know, we can just use these mindsets everywhere.
0: A lot of, um, there's a lot of very open phraseology in this book of, you know, there's no right, one right way. These things are experiments. Um, How do you strike the balance when you're writing between being super open and super inclusive versus on the other side, being very definite and trying to make a, a specific argument for something you're passionate about?
3: that was part of the challenge of writing this. We were a part of a book team of about 10 people, and we actually each had different perspectives on that. And so the act of integrating different perspectives, um, we we ended up moving a bunch of the perspectives that were more strongly worded into the website where they could sort of stand on their own. And part of the reason, I think, why we chose to use this open language is because it really is contextual. It really is quite nuanced. And we're hoping that that's actually going to spark the beginning of a conversation um, and hopefully not not necessarily alienate readers, but we're hoping that there is enough concreteness in the practice sessions um, that people can actually try some stuff out and then say, oh, oh, this is what they mean when they kind of point at this, um, because you're starting to see it in your own experience. So I'm hoping that the concreteness comes from actually trying this out yourself rather than relying on oh there's this one story where it went down this particular way but in this other story you tried the same thing and something different happened or and and that's the, that's sort of the complexity coming into it once again but Leanne I, I see you're thoughtful there
1: yeah I've I've got my thoughtful face on haven't I well I'm I'm thinking about like we would have loved to have written the you know here's the five-step book towards making work more human like just do this but as Narayan says the context is different everywhere I think that we've ended up I I really love your noticing layman about open phraseology because I think that is where we've we've ended up for fear of um telling people how to do it um without the context. So the balance that we tried to s- strike was talking about practices. So in each mindset there's a section on practices that we've learned about um that support this mindset. And I think that's as close as we can get to to really authentically being able to to support leaders here. What we really hope is that um, people won't just read the book, but they'll read the book and they'll they'll start with experimenting with some practices. ideally what they'd end up doing is create a team from across the organization to just explore more about how they might um you know how they might experiment their way towards becoming more human together
2: i imagine there was a lot of material that didn't quite
0: make it into the book (laughs) <laughs> what almost made it into the book what did you leave out that you almost included what was on the edge
1: I want to say the why chapter in <laughs> Orion you might have a different view but um one of our one of our gorgeous teammates Richard Dent from Australia he wrote a beautiful chapter on why this is important uh and it was beautifully written and um it was obviously a different voice, and you know when you read those books and they're edited chapters, and you know, well, this chapter's written by this person, and this chapter's written by another person. So you you're, not, you're expecting different kind of ways of writing, and we didn't have this book. Wasn't that this book was like a whole kind of story about making work more human? So sadly, we made the call to to take out Richard's chapter on the why. Uh, and actually, um, a whole heap of other material that was written by other authors, so that we could get a bit more of a coherent story and style. So there was a whole heap of that that was cut, as you rightly say. But the context of the why is so important but people can read his chapter and another chapter on the numbers. You know, like the bus- the pure business case around this stuff on the website humanworknetwork.com, just in case anyone's forgotten. <laughs>
3: and and the learning and growth mindset. When we ended up saying, you know, mindset seems to be the way to go, that that one was like three times as long as all of the other mindsets, just because we act like we come from an organization that's quite steeped in adult development theory. So of course we had pieces on ego and identity. And it was it was very well, well versed um in in dancing lightly with your ego. Uh, but uh that made it also onto the website too.
2: So you're
0: obviously different ages and have different experiential backgrounds, but I'm curious in regards to this notion of humanizing workplaces. What's the what's the most dehumanizing workplace that you've been in?
1: Well, I'm I'm happy to to kick us off here. And um, it's actually not that it was dehumanizing, but it was the thing that really lit the fire in me about human work. And so I I graduated as a chartered accountant and um, after university, went and worked for four years. I lasted four years, I, and in that time, I became the young chartered accountant of the year. And you know, like I was really like going for it. Uh, but the thing that became less and less tolerable was every morning when I'd go into the lobby. I felt like I left 80% of myself in the lobby and took 20% of myself in the lift, because uh, going into the work environment, I was well valued for how much I charged uh, every six minutes is how in professional firms, we do it here in New Zealand. Uh, and the rest of myself that could have contributed so much to the business was just um, unwelcome. And um, and I didn't feel safe to, to, to bring all of me in. Eh? And so after about four years, I just ran out of the capacity to just take half of me with me. Uh, and so I actually I I resigned and left the whole corporate world and went and ran away and and bought a property in the country and ran a bed and breakfast and you know like that was the impact of um of not being able to show up fully. It's not like it was it was just normal at the time and I think it's normal for a lot of people still today. And we t- I'm this is thirty years ago for me. That's my story. What about you, Narayan?
3: Oh, I've got stories that are too spicy to share on air. <laughs> <laughs> but i can i can say uh one one pattern is uh being a part of organizations where the best part of working at them for me is the relationships and just working with incredible people and seeing these people frustrated by the same thing and kind of causing each other pain like this department of the business is causing all this downstream pain for this other department and they're causing this downstream pain and it all becomes obvious when you get somebody from each of these teams to actually be open and vulnerable about what we actually care about in the same in the same room. And so I was, I had somehow found a, a role for myself where I got to do that and bring people together to have these meaningful conversations. And I had the sense that this organization was starting to wake up and see itself and to understand oh, we're doing this to ourselves. All of the pain that we feel, all of this stuff that we describe as inhuman, that comes out of our own sort of lack of awareness of what's happening, the downstream impacts of of my my own choices that I'm making within this workplace, and that we could actually solve this together. and the the hard part for me was was leaving that organization too soon and never getting to say goodbye to all of the people that I built those relationships with.
0: I was thinking about it myself. I was years ago I was a sort of bohemian yoga meditation teacher and giving public lectures and I I got a little bit bored with it it seemed too easy and so I started to go on Craigslist and I would apply for the craziest jobs that I saw and so I went through this period of a couple of years of just trying all these crazy jobs on the side Um, and the worst thing for me personally was when you went into a space and it was clear people couldn't talk to each other like it was just obvious nobody could share anything and didn't trust each other in that space it was it was crippling I had a panic attack
2: one day after being in a space like that it was awful
4: yeah sadly I I suspect that's common for so many people today and how
1: does that make you feel when you go home and you want to kick the cat or you want to kind of give your kids a hug?
0: Uh, it's a mixture. <laughs> yeah. You you want to reach out with tenderness and you also need to be held, but sometimes you can't tell whether that's an angry explosion or not. Huh. Um, I, I was and, and, thinking reading this. So yeah, go ahead, ahead.
3: I, I was just going to say like, what happens when you've been in that situation for a decade or two decades? And you actually just think that's normal like oh this is my expectation for what work is it's actually how i feed my family but it sucks and that's that's like the default i think a part of what we're attempting to describe in the book is can we actually dream a little bit bigger like could we picture a workplace that actually lifts us up and and i have a sense that there's going to be so many people who would I don't know get a couple of chapters in and be like this book is so unrealistic there's no way like how would i even have an expectation for what you're describing here like there's a sense in which like leanne and i now work at an organization that for me i consider it to be at the cutting edge of human work like it it really makes me a better person and i feel like it nourishes me and i love contributing to this organization and now i'm like okay how do we even point to other people and say that this exists without causing the immense frustration of people saying yes and i've been missing this my entire life or i think i work for some place that's pretty good but it's nowhere near as far as we're talking about and what if the vision that leanne and i are describing in this book is also just the first step in this direction of like this like vastly different human culture that might become visible 50 years from now, a hundred years from now, what, what are the workplaces that our children will be like living in? Is there a chance that we can actually nudge workplaces so that it's totally different? Like, like the kind of shift from being a factory worker in my grandparents' generation, I think is drastically different from being a, a, a worker in today's organizations, but what does that next categorical shift look like? And is it even possible to inspire people to think that broadly with just a book? What are the other nudges that we need to make in in different areas and, and to amplify this kind of message or to give people a taste of something, something new?
0: I think taste is a good word. That's the, that's the sense I got from this book that you're, you're sort of dipping your toe into the flavor of something that could be, and that's, um, I mean, it sounds so aspirational that your heart cries out for it, but at the same time, you're suspicious. And these people you mentioned, Orion, who've been in these uh, dehumanizing workplaces for decades, how do you? You mentioned getting communicated to them. How do you communicate them? How do you communicate to somebody who's been sort of underwater for so long it doesn't make sense to them there's any other option and they kind of don't want anyone else to have the thing that they were denied anyway
3: and and if that's the leadership in an organization what kind and and their best dream for an organization is I don't know (laughs) what is their best dream for an organization what is the aspiration for them how do we how do we raise our bar for what should be aspirationally possible and i think there is a generational shift um i don't have any data to support this but i think people are are noticing that gen z has different expectations for what they want in a workplace and that it's almost palpable how unsatisfied they are as they step into the present day workplace and what does that next generation of leaders look like like are there people paving the way where they can say hey we have a new attractor point here. This is a different kind of organization and it's going to be so attractive to talent that everyone's going to want to work for those organizations. Like I actually foresee a human work model um that outcompetes the sort of business as usual model right now and it could sweep the world if it if it becomes uh tangible and and like you would know that this exists and you actually had the option to choose, hey, I'm going to graduate university or I'm going to leave high school and I want to work in this type of organization. It's kind of like all the people saying I want to work for a startup now. It's sexy, it's cool and it's attracting the talent. What if the next thing of the next version of startup is a human organization that really does have this this sort of north star of workplaces that make everybody better. Um yeah. <laughs> I haven't
2: I haven't described that dream before but That's coming up now.
4: As you were talking, Naran, I was thinking about
1: a, I, I, I spoke at a CEO circle this week about human work. And one of the CEOs was for a large recruitment firm. And he was just talking about how much he was noticing people were putting organizations' purpose at the forefront of what the kind of organizations they were looking for to work at. And so they're looking for an organization that has a purpose that serves humanity and the planet in some way. And, and, I, and so as you were talking, I was just thinking about um, 20 years ago, I wrote uh, the first book that I, my, my first book called A New Generation of Business Leaders. And in that, um, I I spoke about this idea of business leaders caring more than just about profit, caring about contributing to the world, either um in the community or environmentally or internally, like the kind of thing we're talking about now. And it was a battle, eh? Like it was like I remember doing the roadshow with the book afterwards and and talking at business, business um breakfasts and things and 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 leaders just being so sceptical, look, the role of business is business, the end, you know, and now roll the clock forward 20 years and organisations, uh, there's been a massive shift, organisations talking about purpose in terms of sustainability and corporate social responsibility and gosh, we're not there yet, there's so much work to do. But in 20 years, we've seen such a shift that business leaders are no longer saying that stuff's irrelevant. They're not saying that anymore. They're saying, yep, we have a role in the community um and part of the reason they're saying that is social license to operate right we are demanding that of our organizations and then so if i think about today we've got um this the ceo from this large recruitment firm telling me that the biggest um attractor for his potential uh, employees and organizations is looking at organizations purpose in terms of sustainability and corporate responsibility what might be the case in 20 years when people are going to that HR, direct, HR firm and saying, I'm looking to work for a firm that doesn't just care about purpose, but cares about humans.
4: Yeah, that's the dream.
2: How do you think about um,
0: going forward teasing simulations of that apart from authenticities. You know, I was just rereading the book Mindfulness*, which points out ways that mindfulness practice can be co-opted by unhealthy business communities. And there's like an old joke that if you make a t-shirt that says fuck capitalism, they'll mass produce it and sell it back to you. Like, <laughs> how do you, how do you make sure that these new values aren't just absorbed as a surface back into the existing system and promote it as a new value,
2: will they continue the underlying toxic practices? It's interesting because I I I wonder
3: if we have a sense that there's a broader spiritual sort of renaissance going on right now. I think wisdom is moving to be more in fashion, and maybe fashion's not the right word as well. There's some things that for me at least I've I've seemed kind of skeptical looking at them to say oh those things they don't have the depth. I I'm not that interested but as I go closer to them there's always goodness that I can see that I that I can find within it. Um even the ones that like oh that's such a such a cliche hippie community over there. You make friends with the people there. They're doing their best. <laughs> and there's something that they're tracking and maybe five years from now they'll be embarrassed about all the stuff they're into right now and and that would actually signify growth and yeah i i wonder about i wonder about the dynamics like is there a way that we we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're doing the right thing and it's still not being there like i think we're actually on the edge of something and so i don't have a lot of certainty that i even can discern what is more wholesome versus what is less wholesome maybe it's partly because i'm still trying to transcend and include and say yes we do have need for coercive power structures within organizations that helps things get done faster and i wish that there was a deeper platform of collaboration that we all actually feel like we're equals working on the same team for something broader and that we can actually opt into this and power dynamics always look different as you as you get closer to them um So that's, that's a non-answer right there.
1: (laughs) I've got another non-answer. Nice. (laughs) A a couple of things strike me. One is um, people are not stupid. And so, you know, organizations that proclaim human workplaces and don't walk the talk. um, I just think that's pretty obvious that that's not sustainable. Um, if people are looking for a human workplace, um, you know, how how do people do their research about finding these places? They go and talk to people, right? They they don't just kind of accept the job uh, if that's what they're looking for. So I don't think we're going to get sucked into that. But what I would say is that um, Narayan spoke before about the firm that we work for, Cultivating Leadership. Um, it it attracts people who care about human work, um, but not everyone is up for the kind of human workplace that, um, for instance, comes from a love, from a learning and, and growth mindset. You, you know, like um, Robert Keegan talks about deliberately developmental organisations. Uh, cultivating leadership is one of those we work hard at continuing to learn and grow it's just part of who we are and if you weren't that way inclined it would be a pretty difficult environment i think to work in and so i think what i'm trying to say is meeting people where they are um, and so if a leader wants to move in this direction of human work um and that but they want to do it from a from a less than ideal place in my view you know they want to do it because they want to they want an attraction policy uh they want to get better at attracting good people and so they haven't really got their heart and soul into the idea of human work but they want to play with at least the pr angle of it um my feeling is great that's where they are they are let's start there and and can we help you know, like th- this is what Narayan and I care about, helping organizations to become more human, right? And, and so can we help that leader from where they are, even though what seems safe for him because of his board of directors or what, whatever social context exists, that he, that he hasn't really got his heart and soul into it, but he really sees that taking a more human workplace uh, approach is a good thing to do. Um, I think that can lead to real goodness. And so it's not really up to us to judge um, judge the kind of motivation, huh?
3: You do bring up something interesting, which is that each mindset actually has a shadow.
1: Yes.
3: We wanted to write more about that in the book as well. And there's, there's something that by our discernment would be, we would consider to be the healthy expression of this, but there is also the let's do this, but from the wrong place. And so we write more about that in the website, but it's totally possible to shoot for something short-sighted without having the real internal generator of what is human work? How do we actually like bring up the gifts and those around us? Like, yeah, and what is the pathway to get into that space? And I think that's where it's supported by more than just the workplace. That's
2: where it's your whole life. So I'm intrigued by the shadow sides. Uh, You know, if I had to, I mean,
0: it seems like the under, like the Ur principle for this whole book is this movement from coercive to cooperative environments. And for a lot of people, I think in their discourse, cooperation is usually paired with competition as its opposite. How do you see the role of competition in in cooperative business environments what role does it serve and how do you hold it in a way that serves cooperation and not coercion
3: there's 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 a lot of good writers around this i'm i'm thinking of of hansi freinacht maybe would be one that your your readers are, are familiar with talking about the different games that we can play and that there's there's a question, Oh, actually maybe this one's from uh, the, the Infinite Game, but what's the game that we all want to play indefinitely? Well, How do we change the rules of the game to be more fun? Competition can be fun and can serve a purpose, but if at the end there's a loser and you really don't want to be the loser and somebody's a winner and it's kind of not satisfying to be the winner because nobody wants to play the game with you anymore, that would be sort of the... The coercion, the coercive model, the competitive, the competitive model, um, without a grounding in actually, but we're all human here and we all deserve to play this game. Um, we all want to play something with each other. So I've played Monopoly. I've, I would hate if Monopoly was my entire life where there's one person who wins with all the money at the end of the world and everybody else has basically gone bankrupt and wants to flip the table. That's not a world I want to live in, but I am very happy to play, to to live in a world where we can play Monopoly with each other, and maybe we can even bet money on this Monopoly game, and it's very competitive, and we can lose ourselves in it, but then we cook
2: dinner together and, and everyone's fed. How about you, Leanne? How do you think about competition?
1: You know, the beauty of having at least two authors in a book is that um, you don't each have to be able to hold the whole. And in a way, what I've said is not true. Um, Narayan and I hold a a whole together, but there are pieces of this book that have Narayan's voice much more strongly over them. And this model of coercive and collaborative is new to me and... I feel like a babe, really, in the woods, just trying to um, find my way through what that looks like and in practice is. Um, And so I'm very happy to leave this idea of what competition looks like in in a collaborative way of
4: operating to (laughs) Narayan. This book
2: has really um stimulated my thinking around
0: the quality of organizational spaces and one of the things my partner does is look after the telecommunications for the local municipal government and so I get a lot of information about the decision-making process of the town council and it always stands out to me that being awesome is not a criteria for anything they're planning on doing Um, And then when it comes to things like a nursing shortage, right? There's this grudging, unwillingness to sort of accept it. And then there's this blaming of people who aren't going into nursing. And then maybe we'll raise the salaries, but nobody's having a discussion around what if we increase the quality of the experience? What if we made nursing a more awesome thing to do? Why why is it so difficult for us socially to have that conversation is it just because it's so easy to track the money and so difficult to track quality or what
2: is it
1: You know layman when you um first opened that question you you talked about the fact that the book has really helped helped you think about if i get it right like the spaces in between, you know, like the spaces and organisations. Did I get that right?
0: Um, I'm not. Uh, I'm not convinced that's what I was trying to say. I, <laughs> but I'm not yeah. against it either.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, let, let let bring bring us back to the nursing story. If I go too off piste here, but um, one of the things that is obvious about the way in which Narayan and I and the team have been thinking about human work is despite our best efforts to bring in leaders with exceptionally diverse backgrounds and from everywhere in the world, um <clears throat> large organizations, small organizations, cultural differences, gender differences, etc., diversity has really been a principle that we've held so that we can learn as broadly as possible. The book is very strongly informed by Western ideas. And so when you just talked about this idea, well, what I thought I heard you say, but you completely could have said something completely different was about this, the spaces. I, what it reminded me of is down here in New Zealand, we're really close to the Pacific Islands. And you might've heard of some of these islands, you know, Samoa and Tonga and Fiji. And uh, the beauty of that Uh, And the beauty of coming from this country, Aotearoa, which is New Zealand and Maori language, is that we are learning here about um, the gifts of indigeneity in a way, I I think, perhaps faster than some other countries. And so the way in which we, uh, our worldviews down in this part of the world have been influenced by Indigenous cultures, I, I think, in a way that we can't really see, uh, as, as compared to perhaps some other countries, and so there's this concept in in Samoan, which is leva, which uh, which means the the space in between or the space that relates. And there's and although it's Samoan, it's a concept that crosses the Pacific, including uh, including Aotearoa New Zealand, where Uh, We're learning from uh, Maori uh, uh, communities about collective ways of thinking over more individualistic ways of thinking and paying attention to the quality of the space between you and I, the quality of the spaces in our organizations the ability to be able to hold silence the ability to be able to hold the polarity of action and reflection and i think that there's something that is almost unspeakable that we have that we don't we don't talk about in the book because of our predominantly western way of holding this idea of more human work that there are many many ways of holding this idea that we haven't got access to purely because of the way in which we've been raised in the worldviews of those that i think indigenous communities often can hold much more easily than us so i completely took us off on a tangent there <laughs> layman you wanted to talk about nursing and here we are we're talking Well, about no there were there were intersection
0: reading. points there for sure because i okay. think you know the quality of the interpersonal relationship. Is one of the things I was trying to get at. But my question, yeah. and maybe er- er- Narayan can take a crack at this, which is why is it so difficult for us to foreground conversations around quality of experience? Why is that sort of the last thing on our agenda that we want to take seriously
2: in terms of collectively deciding things? It's hard to talk about the things that are hard to talk about. And I think we really do privilege the conversations that we can have with words. It seems to be more easy to, to spread those ideas. And even, even
3: as you first asked that question, Layman, I was thinking, oh yeah, I have, I, I could answer this question because I have a friend who's been doing systems change in the in the Ontario healthcare space, and she has all of these ideas. She kind of got a sense because she talked all these different perspectives, and and I'm thinking, yep, that would be me reaching for words to explain something that I think I know about secondhand. So what is that knowing? It's a it's a particular type of knowing. And Leanne, when you took it in a different direction you're pointing at the fact that there are other types of knowing that don't rely on these words as much and okay but how do we communicate that how does that how do those things that we can't really talk about how do those spread throughout culture and actually shift us and move us in the ways that they need to or we want them to and that something is going on in Aotearoa. Where there is, are different ways of knowing that you're sensing are starting to permeate the culture there, and I—I I mean, even our earlier language of, "Can this book offer a taste of something?" Like taste to me would be that—that that other way of knowing, sensing of a potential that the words didn't quite do it for me. You described it. It's not something that I actually know, but I feel my heart is connecting to something. I mean, we we did feel a strong urge to bring in imagery into the book. Um, so Jessica Fan from from my learning community, uh, we we invited her to read each chapter and to produce an image that sort of her heart was able to produce from her integration of what she understood this to be pointing at. Um, and I wonder if if there will be people who linger on the imagery or who actually use that as an access point into it. But how we do that broader in culture? Oh, that's a that's a beautiful
2: question.
1: It feels to me, as I listen to you, Narayan, that we are pointing towards this idea of um I- I'm getting clearer anyway, that. The water that we swim in is being able to be pretty shiny with our words about what we what we're pointing to here Uh, that's important when you write a book it's important when you talk on podcasts about the idea and as we're slowing down in this conversation it feels to me like we're getting closer to the essence of the book uh, and we don't always have the patience and the tolerance for the slowness uh, with the leaders that we're talking to, who are coming to coming and saying, "How can we make our organisation more human?" Um, we're used to pace and answers, and what we're offering here is a taste and a direction uh, and a flavour, which
4: could be really frustrating for people.
0: Yeah, it's a challenging invitation. One of the things that came up for me, Narayan, when you were talking about language, so about, you know, there's a mysterious interplay between what we can experience and what we can say. And then if I broaden that out, there's something like a mysterious coupling between Uh, social structure in organizations and the experience of being in organizations and when we're dealing with mindsets we're dealing with something that's more a little more subjective and intersubjective as opposed to the actual organizational layout now I assume when you're writing a book like this you don't want to ostracize readers by telling them how their organization should be run but there are a lot of people sociocracy holacracy work democracy i mean even all the marxist critiques and things like that who say the way that you set the organization up makes all the difference and that will create the humanizing outcome or not and you can do all the internal change of mindset you want but if you don't really have a different organization a different decision making structure a different distribution of resource structure then you'll never really get there How, how do you feel about that kind of an argument And about that sort of objective structural side of this.
3: I'm sensing the chicken and the egg as well. Um, One of the leaders, Heist, that we spoke to tells his story of converting his organization into a holacracy. And it's beautiful. And I have the sense that he's got the generator, that the structure that he creates and the way that he brings it to life is animated by a spirit which is what we're sort of pointing at in the mindset of everyone is a leader i've also been a part of organizations that have adopted holacracy because it seemed like the right thing to do and i didn't have a sense that the spirit animated this even though there were a couple of people in the organization who i could sense actually did have that mindset and were coming from it it didn't come alive in the organization in a way that i was able to experience even as I was sort of an anthropo- anthropologist on the on the edges, uh, both embedded internally, but also studying it. And I think that's partly why we're looking at these, these mindsets as being the generator that would generate new forms. And yeah, where do you get that creativity? What happens if you put together five leaders who are really tapped into love and care and say, well, if you were to start a new organization, how would you do things differently? One of uh one of the leaders, um, uh, Janet from from Koha Kai, or Janice, Janice, yeah, Janice Lee. Yeah, when we had our book launch, she described something like, "I don't know how other leaders do it because the organization that I created just comes from this place, and so it has these particular qualities because it's in a way the organization is like." and this is my words, but a reflection of the individual who creates it in, in some ways. So totally chicken and the egg, can can the leader create the structures and can they be inspired by other people who've walked a similar path? Or can you create the structures and then that somehow helps somebody to, to bootstrap themselves into that way of thinking? I haven't seen it
2: happen the other way, but it probably has.
1: Yeah, and I would just um, I would just challenge that view that that the structure needs to be sorted um, in order to be able to do this, and that is because I really do come from that place of start where you are, Uh, and it might end up you know like Heiss Dalat the um, CEO that well ex CEO because now he has his it's a holacracy, so he's no longer the CEO, you know like. It it came at a certain time that it was right for him for their business to transfer over to Holocracy. But he bought with him, he says, this really explicit wholeness idea into the Holocracy change. And the wholeness could have been enough. It could have been. But he but you know, there was something else that was wanting to be done in terms of <clears throat> everyone as a leader. So I, yeah, I just I would I would be, I'd be much more interested in hearing a story about a leader starting from where they are, um, regardless of the structure. We've seen it done with, with regular structures. Curiously, though, not one of the leaders that we found for the book, not to say that there isn't one, there'll be plenty, but none of them came from publicly listed organizations um you know they all had some form of governance but they were closer to the governance Uh, yeah yeah we're we're talking about going
3: we're we're talking about going closer to the heart and soul of organizations and organizations these days do have a raison d'etre and for many of them it's it's profit and that that profit motive is stewarded by all of the shareholders of the board that represents the shareholders and I can imagine if there is conflict between creating human work and this profit motive that profit is probably going to win because that's the heart of the organization and if there's a tension that starts to build because it's not able to be integrated it wouldn't work and I think that's part of the the leadership challenge for any leader who's actually trying to do this and is driven by this desire to say we don't know how to do this it's always it's contextually different and we have to figure out how to integrate it with the players that are here because the people on the board are also human and there's there's probably all of these pathways that are possible and that the the leader may be able to wayfind their way through and actually create something yeah but I it's I I think there's an edge here that I'm, I'm very curious about and would love to, to hear more stories if, if anyone knows of any of people who have sort of threaded that
2: needle.
1: Well, just on that Narayan too, like the website is designed to be alive. And so we're really looking, we're continuing to look for leaders who who have been experimenting with more human work. And so we really invite anyone to get in touch with us who's curious about um, sharing their story um, so that others can can hear it, and we'll uh, put that up on on the website and um,
4: share it with our community.
2: This book is clearly
0: um, human socioeconomic in its focus. But talking about spirit and indigeneity makes me want to ask a question around ecology. What's the relationship between all of this and nature? right is it possible to have humanizing workspaces that are not necessarily good for the environment or how do they inform each other how are you guys thinking about the role of ecology in all this
1: yeah I really am called to jump in here um the the I'm having a in New Zealand I'm, I'm having conversations with um two in two parts of the country about creating events for us to explore this idea of human work from the lens of a Maori worldview and the first person that I spoke to an incredible woman in uh, Otitahi Christchurch um, when I first started to talk to her about it she said so the thing that I can't get is why you're talking about human beings as atomized things you know like if unless we're talking about this in connection with Papatuanuku which is Mother Earth here in New Zealand I'm not interested help me understand how this work is in service of the whole yeah and this idea of breaking things down so we're only talking about organizations or we're only talking about humans was just you know like she just couldn't hold that in her mind and I was just so grateful for that challenge here's me uh, uh like a pakeha uh, white colonizer uh, in in a country trying to lit, move towards understanding more about a Maori worldview. And the first thing she says is pretty much the challenge will go away unless you can help me understand how this is related to the whole. So just, you know, just in that, there's a beautiful learning for me. Um, it's kind it's for for me because I've come from a sustainability background, this just is just obvious. It's almost like it doesn't need to be stated. If we're doing this work in service of humans being able to go home to be good um, stewards of their children's lives, um, to be good humans in relation in, in their family relationships, to be able to go out into their communities and serve well, it, it all of this, in my view, it's just so obviously is in service of sustainability from an ecology perspective. And I don't even have the words because it feels like it's just such a natural connection. But I really am appreciating, Lehman, you're asking us to draw the line and how explicitly can we do that? Um, without it being
4: just a given.
2: Maybe that's the next book.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe.
2: Humanizing
3: the environment. Uh. <laughs> scratch that
0: that's the worst idea (laughs) uh well we're probably coming pretty close to the end now we've got time for a few more things I wonder if there's um anything I should have asked you that I haven't asked you or or any outstanding things that are lurking in your mind that you'd love to talk to about this book
1: Thanks for the invitation, Layman. Um, And I might just want to tell a story um, from my own experience, which was, which has contributed to us being here today, well, me being on this call anyway. And that is when I had my first child, when I was 30, I, I had the experience that I was overwhelmed to the degree that it was the first time in my life that I felt like I was faced with something I just couldn't do. And That was pretty rough for an overachiever and it had me think deeply about how it was for other women who had given birth in not supportive environments because i gave birth in an incredibly supportive environment i had a partner uh, who i could rely on completely my mother was living with us Um, i had a very privileged education, I had everything I had the so- from a socioeconomic perspective, I had what I needed. And yet I was just so overwhelmed with this. Um, six months later, uh, I was looking for places that I could contribute to women who were in this vulnerable situation. And I found myself for some years volunteering in the world of domestic violence. Uh, and I would... With another advocate, go out um, once there had been an arrest for domestic violence and work with the victim and her children generally um, to help them find refuge space and that kind of thing. I tell this story because uh, it was my first exposure in my life to other humans not having their needs met uh, physically, emotionally, psychologically, from a safety perspective. And it opened my eyes to compassion in a way that the human being in front of me before the way that i viewed them was sort your shit out um, you know get with it um, meet your kpis you know like what just just do the job because you know like we're all capable we've all had these experiences where we all know how to um contribute here so do your job kind of like that uh, and I happened to be on the board of the most right-wing political party in New Zealand at the time. Like, you know, like everything about me was pretty much just sorted out. And then I had these years in domestic violence and I, and I what I realised was that, uh, and this just seems so, so dim in retrospect, but actually everybody's got a different story and not everybody had a privileged upbringing like I did. I did not know that. So my expectations of the human in front of me was that they had everything that they needed. But that actually isn't so. And, and so how is it that I, can, that I can go into a store and be served by somebody and not, be, not bring love and care to that human being? Because I have no idea what they're going home to. I have no idea whether they were ever taught to trust an adult. So I guess um, this idea of compassion for our fellow human beings, just like not judging, feels like it's, I don't know, there's something uncomfortable. I'm feeling a bit uncomfortable, like I'm on my soapbox here. But that's the truth of the matter about why I care about this
4: stuff.
2: Any any final thing you want to bring into this,
3: Narayan? I'm just really appreciating our, our space that we've created today on this on this podcast. Um Leanne, I always it, it's always new listening to you share about about this book, why this work is important. And it just it feels so much like it's a, a learning journey. And layman, the questions that you've asked have <laughs> helped us to to open up some some deeper deeper facets of this um and i can't wait to see what continues to evolve from these these dialogues these conversations and what kind of ripples it may create in the world Mm. so feeling a
0: lot of gratitude
2: me
0: too i'm very grateful for how much you both brought into this and also the book is it's got a very nice flavor and i'm i it's exciting, the future, that it suggests. And there's a very interesting balance between the broad applicability of the principles and the and the very concentrated, very real need to make these changes happen in the workplace, which is where uh, most people spend most of their lives and also where most of our civilization seems to be hung up. So I appreciate the work that you two have been putting into this. Thanks very much.
4: Thanks for having us, Lennon.